right, Deuteronomy chapter 19, we're going to continue to look at Moses in his last days of life, giving the nation of Israel their marching orders prior to going into the promised land, the land of Canaan, the land that God promised would be flowing with milk and honey. And so we have some definite uh, awesome things to learn as we continue on in Deuteronomy chapter 19. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us as we desire to hear from you. Lord, as we have an opportunity to even be provoked to thought, I pray, Lord, that we would uh, just be open to you to allow you to speak through us during that time. So bless our time as we offer it up to you in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. So we're going to look at these cities of refuge in this first part, and we've already seen this. There are three cities on this side of the Jordan. But they're going to go on the other side of the Jordan. And so Moses is going to let them know that, hey, when you go into the land of Canaan, the land that flows with milk and honey houses that you did not build, orchards, groves that you did not plant, you receive all that fruit. I want you guys to as well establish three cities of refuge. So we'll look at that. We'll look at what it's all about and we'll see how it applies to us. Verse one, Deuteronomy chapter 19 says, when the Lord your God has cut off the nations whose land the Lord your God has given you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall separate three cities for yourself in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God has given you to possess. You shall prepare roads for yourself and divide into three parts the territory of your land, which the Lord your God has given you to inherit that any manslayer may flee there. And so you have these cities of refuge that if you accidentally killed somebody, you can run to. Of course, there would be an investigation. They would make sure that it was legit, that it was indeed not murder, but manslaughter. Anybody know the difference between the two? The Bible says thou shalt not kill, very different than murder. Okay, so it all has to do with the motive of that which took place. If it was an accident, if you weren't doing anything reckless, I mean, even though it was an accident, there's still a recklessness that you can partake of. And I I find it interesting (coughs) that all of our laws in the book still come from this section of Scripture, comes from, you know, the fact that there's killing, intentional anger, uh, revenge, you know, all of these different things, money involved. And then there's accidental, right, manslaughter and different degrees of the same act. And so it all depends on the motive. So in this case, if there was an accidental killing, God is saying, hey, I want you to set up a place of refuge, a place where they can go. I want you, in fact, to make sure that the roads are clear, that the roads built so that they won't have trouble finding these places. Okay, three of them in the city that you go in. And then he gives us an example, verse 4. And this is the case of the manslaughter who flees there that he may live. Whoever kills his neighbor unintentionally, not having hated him in time past, as when a man goes to the woods with his neighbor to cut timber and his hand swings a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies, he shall flee to one of these cities and live lest the avenger of blood, while his anger is hot, pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and kill him. 
though he was not deserving of death, since he had not hated the victim in time past. Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall separate three cities for yourself. And so, again, um, you, you begin to see some of the motive of somebody killing somebody intentionally as opposed to unintentionally. See the word twice, hated. And so we need to be careful with hate. We need to be careful with our emotions, our passions that we have. And God commands us a certain behavior. And he doesn't always command us. um, uh, Let me rephrase that. When God gives us these commandments, they're for our well-being. They're for our good. And so what causes somebody to murder somebody, Jesus would tell us in the Sermon on the Mount. It begins in the heart and it's hatred. And so all of us, in a sense, have hated without cause or to the wrong degree. And so we need to be careful and we need to recognize that God is gracious. And so in that, we see an example. Guy has an axe. Axe flies off of the handle. Unintentionally, without hatred, kills a friend, the person that he's with, a co-worker. He has the opportunity to flee to one of these Uh, cities of refuge okay verse 11 but if anyone hates his neighbor lies in wait for him and rises against him and strikes him mortally so that he dies and he flees to one of these cities then the elders of his city shall send and bring him from there and deliver him over to the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die your eyes shall not pity him but you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from israel that it may go well with you And so twice now we see this avenger of blood. Is the avenger of blood something that God instituted? I got yes, I got no. The avenger of blood was something that was taking place in the time. So it wasn't something that God necessarily said, hey, I want you to be an avenger of blood. These were individuals where if basically I have the the rule, if somebody killed my brother, I have to retaliate and go kill the person that killed my brother. Okay. So that was the avenger of blood. You had to look out, if you will, for something that was done to your next of kin, family member, or something like that. So it wasn't necessarily something that God established. It was something that was taking place. But God is letting them know this is taking place. How should we deal with it? Let's have these cities of refuge where these people can flee. Their case can be tried. And then he says something interesting in the last part here. Your eyes shall not pity him, but you shall put away the guilt of the innocent from Israel that it may go well with you. Here's something that happens in our culture that is shameful. Somebody is abused, taken advantage of. They don't want to go through the system and be raped again or abused again because the system will take you through this ugly, oh, unnecessary, almost like you're the perpetrator. You're the one that caused this. And so a lot of people to avoid that, they're like, you know what, I'm, I'm I'm not going to even say anything. God is saying, that's wrong. That's wrong. If you look at the statistics on people who abuse children, they don't abuse one child. They abuse child after child after child after child after child after child. It's, It's crazy, the statistics on that. You don't stop with one child. You don't ruin one person's life. It goes on and on and on and on. And so the Lord would have us in those cases. Yeah, I know it's hard and I know it's difficult to go through that system again, to, to, to recount those memories again, to have to testify one more time. But you have to give 
the justice system an opportunity to do what it's in place to do. And you testify. You hope that person receives their justice. In your heart, you've forgiven them. You've released them of the debt that they owe you because they can't pay you back that debt, right? They took something from you. But nonetheless, I just find it interesting that this is in the law God is establishing as they go into Canaan. Now, the Bible applies this picture of the city of refuge to the believer finding refuge in God on more than one occasion. Psalm 46, verse 1, the Bible says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. More than 15 other times in the Psalms, God speaks as being our refuge. And so as it relates to this city of refuge, what do we run to? What do we go to? Where do we turn? Guilty or innocent, we run to Jesus. Jesus is our refuge. Jesus is our safe place. Jesus is our hiding place. Jesus is our protection. Jesus is the one that watches over us and makes sure that we are going to be taken care of, that we are not going to have all of the consequences, whether rightly or wrongly, of our behavior become us. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, awesome verse. The Bible says that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Again, Jesus is our refuge. What does that word mean? Immutable, immutability is that God cannot lie. He's unchanging. The immutability of God. He can't change or it can't change. Unchangeable. Both Jesus and the cities of refuge are within easy reach of the needy person. They were of no use unless someone could get to the place of refuge. So because the place of refuge was easy to get to, Jesus is easy to get to. Guys, we can't make it difficult for people to come to Jesus. We can't tell people that they have to jump through a million hoops, that they have to clean up their act before they come to God, that they do have to do all this. No, 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 no. Jesus says, come as you are. Come with your sin. Give me your sin. Give me your pain. Give me your hurt. Give me your confusion. Give me your depression. Give me whatever it is you're going through. We got to let people know that they can go to Jesus and that he is a refuge, a present help in time of need, the scripture says. Both Jesus and the cities of refuge are open to all, not just the Israelites. No one needs to fear that they would be turned away from their place of refuge in their time of need. Numbers 35, verse 15 tells us this. Numbers 35, and um, there's another section of scripture. I want to say it's in Exodus, and this section right here, this chapter, Deuteronomy 19, are the kind of the chapters that talk about these city, the cities of refuge. And so both Jesus and the cities of refuge are open to all, Jews and Gentiles. So anybody can come. Well, I'm a Catholic. Well, yeah, yeah, you can come to Jesus. Well, I'm a Buddhist. Well, yeah, yeah, you can come to Jesus. Well, I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist. Yeah, you too can come to Jesus. Everybody can come to Jesus, okay? Jesus is not exclusive to certain demographics. All can come to Jesus. Uh, next, both Jesus and the cities of refuge became a place where the one in need would live. You don't come to a city of refuge in time of need just to look around. And so if we've gone to Jesus, he's our refuge, we stay in Jesus. We stay with Jesus. You leave the city of refuge, the avenger of blood could take you out. You don't leave until the high priest 
died. I think it's the priest. Yeah, the high priest dies. When the high priest dies, then basically all debts are, are paid or something and you can leave. But it's kind of neat because our high priest died. So Jesus died, so we're safe, but he's also our city of refuge. It's kind of a double cool little thing. Um, both Jesus and the cities of refuge are the only alternative for the one in need. Without specific this specific protection, they will be destroyed. And so Jesus is our specific protection. Both Jesus and the cities of refuge provide protection only within their boundaries to go outside meant death. We looked at that. Uh, Numbers chapter 35 tells us that. And then finally, with both Jesus and the cities of refuge, full freedom comes with the death of the high priest. And so, again, just that double thing that we have Jesus as our city of refuge and our high priest has died. And so all of our debts are paid, taken care of, no longer do are we guilty of those things. And remember, these are for people who did things unintentionally. The, the thing that's different, a crucial distinction, the cities of refuge only help the innocent. The guilty can come to Jesus and find refuge. So we did murder people, right? Because we did hate. We did commit adultery, right? Because we looked at, you know, at, with, with lust. We did do all of these things that they're accusing us of. We're guilty. And yet Jesus is still our refuge. Unlike these cities of refuge, they only help the innocent. Are we innocent? We're guilty. Dead in trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians chapter 2. And Jesus remains our refuge. Now here's a question I ask. Does God, I'm sorry, does God receive us when we're playing games with him? How do we know when we're playing games with God? Yeah. You know? How would you know? Well, here, hold on. We can't play games with God, but I'm saying, does God receive us when we play games with him? Does God receive us when we play games with him? No. Why not? You think he does? So I know that I'm not sincere in my repentance. I'm playing games with God or I'm saying God's gracious. I give God the Heisman. I say, what are you going to do? I'm playing games with God. Does God receive me? Why not? Because it's not true repentance. So there's a qualification for God to receive me. True repentance. So God's grace and mercy is going to be bestowed upon me. Grace, getting what I don't deserve. Mercy, not getting what I deserve. Okay, so if I'm lukewarm, I'm going to be spewed out. Play games, not play God, play games, not God. Okay, uh, struggling is different than playing games. I think we all struggle. I don't think there's a person in here that doesn't struggle. So we all struggle. What do you mean uh, God, God receives? What do you mean by that exactly? Well, let's take a look at the city of refuge. If somebody went to the city of refuge, they had to have their case heard. If they were obviously innocent of man's or, or guilty of manslaughter, not murder, 
right, then they could stay in the city of refuge. They can find that protection. I'm saying Jesus is our city of refuge. But he not only helps the innocent, the unintentional sinner, but he helps the guilty. He receives the guilty. So now I'm saying, okay, let's take a look at Jesus as our city of refuge, as the one who is our high priest. If I'm playing games with God, does he receive me, welcome me in? Does he take me? Okay. So if you are already with God, you're messing up. Do you think it's a trick question? <laughs> I mean, I mean, because I can see it on both sides. Okay. But at the same time, I say no because. Okay. Interesting. Back. What are your thoughts, Brian? Yeah, when you say I'm sort of trying to decipher what you mean by playing <laughs> games. Do you mean like I really don't believe, but I act like I believe to get the benefits? That's playing a game. How else would you play games with God, though? Like being naughty. Being naughty? I know, again, I, I think we all struggle. <coughs> I'm not saying struggle. Maybe saying, well, I'll do this. I know God will forgive me. Is that playing games? Yeah. Where's the line of sin? How far can I go with God? How pu- far can I push this envelope? Yeah, I'm living with my girlfriend, but we sleep in separate quarters, and nothing really happens all the time, but sometimes. And it's just a lifestyle of compromise and compromise and compromise. At what point am I out? Am I never out? Am I always in? You're always in. I mean, God's father is like you are a parent, right? <laughs> like, like a dad. I mean, I'm not a child. I, I mean, I'm not, I don't have kids. I don't have, like, you know, kids. No matter what our child would do, you know, yeah, you know, come, come back home. Maybe we have to kick him out of the house. But we're never going to not. So from your theology, you, you can never walk away from your salvation. You'd never. No matter how bad you are, no matter how wicked you are. I, I believe the last of the Holy Spirit can give you your salvation. Okay. That's my Interesting. Opinion. Let's take a look at the, uh, the uh, harshest words Jesus ever spoke are found in Matthew chapter 23. I don't know. I, I mean, I'm. Remember, I, I, I provoke thought. I mean, I'm throwing questions out because as I'm looking at the city of refuge and I'm looking at Jesus as our refuge, and yet I'd, I never want to be in a position where I'm habitually committing any sin, never, because I wouldn't feel confident in my salvation. I wouldn't have a security of my personal salvation living in a lifestyle of habitual sin. Yeah, I got a job, and the only way this job works is if you lie daily. I have to tell lies on a daily basis. I wouldn't want that job. I I wouldn't personally, I wouldn't want that job because I think God's bigger than a potential job that I have to lie daily. I'd I'd rather just take my chances, quit, make half the money, but be right with God. Like I would put myself in whatever position necessary to be right with my God. So Matthew 23, the most religious people around that had an exterior of presenting themselves to God. In fact, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will by no means enter into heaven. 
and yet they didn't enter into heaven. I think they were playing games with God. I think they had gotten to the point where they so defined the kingdom of God and the Messiah and what the Messiah was going to be about that it was about them and it was no longer about God. And I think we can play games with God to the extent that we're out. It's just my personal view based on what I just shared with you. So yes, Jesus is our city of refuge. Yes, Jesus is our high priest that has abolished our sins. But be careful, Christian, who dabbles in sin on a habitual basis because the book of 1 John is pretty clear on that. You don't have forgiveness. You don't have forgiveness. So that's my take on it. Again, there's, we could probably talk about it a lot of different angles and a lot of different perspectives, but people who are living in a lifestyle of habitual sin and claiming to know God, at what point would God convict that person? At some point, right? If the Holy Spirit is dwelling within that person, isn't conviction going to come inevitably at some point? So there's kind of my take. We can talk about it later uh, if you have a personal question, but I don't know. That's kind of how I see it. Next, verse 14. It says, You shall not remove your neighbor's landmarks, which the men of old have set in your inheritance, which you shall inherit in the land that the Lord your God has given you to possess. Landmarks are an interesting thing. It talks about personal property and respect the laws of the land that are in place for personal property and things like that. And this is where we get it from. Again, the book of Deuteronomy, the law. And so we need to respect people's personal boundaries. Don't be moving people's line. You, you see all these disputes sometimes on, on the news. You know, these people fighting over six inches or two inches of a property line. They put my fence, uh, they put their fence on my property line and blah, blah, blah. And you see all these crazy things. And so respect the property lines. Um... God here establishes and supports the basic right to private property. When your neighbor has a lawful landmark, you must respect it and are forbidden to change it as you might please. This command supports an important foundation for human society, the right of personal property. God has clearly entrusted certain possessions to certain individuals and other people or states are not permitted to take that property without due process of law. For us, sometimes we'll have a family member that's stingy with something they have. It's theirs. If they want to be stingy, they can be stingy. Take that, whatever you got, and put it where the sun don't shine as far as I'm concerned. If I can't afford one, then maybe I don't have any business asking for it or borrowing it or making sure that you give it to me. No. If you want it bad enough, save up enough money and go buy one or go get it. And if you don't have it, it's theirs. So I think we have a tendency to put on people how gracious they should be with what they have. And that's a bad thing. If you borrow something and it's in your possession and it breaks, you've got to pay that, according to the scriptures, if you really want to take it to its obtained. And I think a lot of people will borrow things without taking that into consideration. Oh, dude, sorry about that. Your truck broke, man. Sorry, sorry. Here's your broken truck back. I have two brothers who did that to me with two cars. One of them got it stolen. The other one burned the engine. Yeah, older brothers. Yeah, younger brother. Responsible brother. Flaky older brothers. So, no, that's wrong. That's just horrible. That shouldn't happen. This command supports an important, oh, I'm sorry, the last thing which uh, the men of Israel have set uh, of old, it says, this law reflects an important spiritual principle. It isn't wise to ignore what the men of old have set 
when doing the work of the Lord, many y- a young man or a new man has greatly in- hindered his own work by being a revolutionary and ignoring the landmarks which the men of old have set. And so you have this young pup, pup come through the ministry and, oh my gosh, I don't even know why they do it like that. And they're just going to abolish everything of a foundation that's been laid to their detriment. If it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new, period. And so if there's a foundation that Chuck Smith has established in the Calvary Chapel system, it's not, I mean, this man was a godly, God-fearing, God-anointed man that God helped establish this incredible system that I have yet to find a better one. 30 years old in the Lord. I'm not saying that other people don't have it figured out. I'm not saying that there's not other great churches. There's plenty. But as far as what I've seen and studied, I taught church history for three years. I was going to say two years, but three years. Church history. I've seen the denominations. I've seen where they come from. I see how they flow. Calvary Chapel's got something figured out. It's simplicity, but they got something figured out. And so again, there's a lot of great churches out there. My daughter goes to Oregon Six months, they can't find a church. They go to church after church after church after church. Dad, you don't even understand, Justine would tell me. Can't somebody just teach the word of God? It's programs. It's gimmicks. It's, it's hoopla. It's jumping through hoops. It's, it's, it's changing. It's always changing. They tried this. It didn't work. They tried this. It doesn't work. Why don't you, why don't you, just, why don't you just teach the word? Too far. Too far. Yeah, yeah. They finally got one. They're there now. They've been plugged in for the last two months. Yeah, or three months, yeah. But they will go church to church, visit churches, visit churches. And people just can't find a church that can simply teach the word simply. Let the word of God speak. Let the word of God go out. Let the word of God, because the word of God is what's going to transform us. So I could have opinions. I can give you stats. I can give you all kinds of stuff. All that stuff might be fluffy, and you'll take it in. You listen, and it's like, oh, I didn't know that. And that was kind of neat to hear things that you haven't heard. But the word of God is what's going to transform you from the inside out. The word of God will not return to him void. So we need to be careful with those landmarks. We need to be careful with the things that are established spiritually speaking. Okay, Be careful. Be careful to, to, to judge and to even question. And it's okay to question. Like you'd always come to any of the leaders and say, hey, why do we do this? We, we welcome that. You know, I don't know why we do that. Why do we do that? You know, sometimes we have to reflect on things. But... These landmarks are important. Okay, our last section. Remember the verse in Matthew that says, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. What does that verse usually people tell us it means? Where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. What do we hear that verse always taken out of context to mean? What do we hear? Yeah, it takes two or three people to have God present with you in a meeting. And if two or three are there, darn, is God present when you're alone? Is God with you when you're alone? Can God confirm something to you when you're alone? Absolutely. So the context of that verse is not that God is where two or three are gathered. That's not what that verse means. So let's take a look at this last section, and then we're going to go to Matthew, and we're going to look at the context of what Matthew was talking about. Starting at verse 15, one witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits, 
By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. What? By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter in question shall be established. In other words, we can't have one person testify against one person because what if that person just hates that person and they lie on that person? But to get two or three corroborated witnesses is very difficult because now you have a lie circulating and they have to be in cahoots with that lie, right? Verse 16, if a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priest and judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother, so you shall put away the evil from among you. Third time he's telling us to put away the evil from among us. And what is it that's taking place? I don't want a corrupt society, God is saying, where people are going to lie on one another. In fact, if somebody lies on somebody and you find out whatever he thought the guy's punishment was going to be, put it on him. That will sift the evil out from among you. Today, what do we have? We have nothing of justice taking place. We have people lying on people. We have people chasing ambulances for money. We have people going to lawyers for things that are embarrassing. You should be embarrassed that you're suing for that. You did something dumb, and now you're going to sue because a company has money, and you can get money if you have a lawyer. All right, so notice he's bringing the judges in on this. He's bringing the witnesses on this. He's bringing God in on this, and he's bringing the priest in on this. And God is going to be faithful to be able to give them wisdom to be able to bring them to a place where they can take care of these things. Verse 20, And those who remain shall hear and fear, and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity, we're, we're told this for the second time, your eye shall not pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And so, so that they wouldn't go overboard and that they wouldn't go under injustice. You can't go, oh, oh yeah, sucker, you took my hand off, I got both of your arms. I got, you, you, you jacked up one of my eyes, I'm going to plug both of your eyes out. I'm going to chop your head off, that's what I'm going to do. No, 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 it's got to be justice. It's got to be the crime and the punishment have to be equal. You have to kind of, you can't go overboard. Today, what are we doing? It's outlandish, outlandish in New York City. Today, if Bruce Jenner were walking around and he, now a she, wants to be called Caitlyn Jenner, if you called Bruce Jenner, Bruce Jenner, Bruce Jenner can sue you for $30,000 and win because he wants to be known as Caitlyn Jenner. That's a law right now in New York on the books. It's ridiculous. That's outrageous. That's, that's a political move. As right or wrong as whatever, oh, my mistake, you want to be called Caitlin, you know, my bad. You know, as right or wrong as that is, that is just not an eye for eye, tooth for tooth, <laughs> life for life, okay? So God wanted justice to take place. He didn't want things, he didn't want the punishment to be too overwhelming but also he wanted to make sure that people received justice all right so god wanted justice now what did jesus do with eye for an eye tooth for tooth 
But remember, Matthew chapter 5. You have heard it said to those of old that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to them. No longer this eye for an eye. No longer this. If somebody says, I want you to carry my cloak a mile, take it too. If somebody tells you to do this, slaps you on one side of the face, give to him your other. And so God was instituting this higher law of love above justice in the new covenant. covenant. So we need to be very careful. Justice seekers. We're just justice seekers. We're to be merciful as our Heavenly Father is merciful. It's very interesting to to really focus on that, that we live under the new covenant, kind of cancels out all the old stuff, especially when you're talking to people who are not, uh, not so much not believers, but confused by Uh a lot of that, and they're, don't have a lot of Bible knowledge. They're more focused on the old, well, what it says over yeah, here, yeah. you know, if somebody does something, <laughs> Yeah, we want to be merciful because we want to be treated with mercy. All right, last thing. Let's look at the context of the, where two or three are gathered in my name. Turn to Matthew chapter 18. We'll close here. Matthew chapter 18. And we'll see what the context of where two or three are gathered in my name. Matthew chapter 18, starting at 15. We'll do 15 to 20. Matthew chapter 18. This, by the way, is church discipline, and it's very rarely done. Usually what happens in churches is they'll go straight to the third step. If somebody's offended, they'll come straight to the leadership in the church, and they want the leadership to fix it. Because we live in such a non-confrontational society where people are scared to confront um, and of course, there are times where you don't want to confront. If you're in danger, if somebody's been abusive, if somebody's been physically abusive, then uh, it's smart to go with somebody else, right, for your protection, or to even give it to an authority. So I understand that, but th- that should be the exception, not the rule. All right, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18, starting at verse 15, the Bible says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, You have gained your brother. But if we will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. So there's our verse from Deuteronomy, verse 17. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So the context of our scriptures is church discipline. The context is... Somebody has offended you. You're in need of a witness. You want God to be present in that needing. Verse 18, Assuredly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. The context of two or three gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them, is a witness to being offended. It's discipline. God is with you. He knows the truth. He knows what happened. He was there. And so that's the context that he is with you in the midst of that. God is with all of us, whether two or three or five or one or 20 are gathered. That's not the context of the scripture. And so don't say, well, two or three are here, so God is here amongst us. God is always with us. The context of this scripture is discipline. Questions? We hear that a lot. It's 
two or three guys. Right, right, right. Yeah. So God is with us always. God is with you when you're alone, when in your prayer closet. What a great place to be with God, right? To have him with you as your witness, as uh, confirmation of what's going on. Somebody called me earlier today and they have a court case pending and they were wondering if they should go to support the family and all of this stuff. And I said, ask God. That's not a right or a wrong. And so there's so many things in our lives that are, they're not definitive, absolutely yes or absolutely no. In those cases, go to the Lord. Take it to the Lord. He'll, he'll give you a confirmation of what he wants for you. But he wants you to learn the skill of developing how to go to him. There's nothing wrong with asking people that you respect, hey, what do you think about this? And, and the Lord can confirm that through, you know, godly brothers and sisters. So that I'm not saying that that's wrong, but we need to learn how to go to the Lord on our behalf for things that are, man, Lord, I'm struggling with this. Should I do this or should I do this? Should I go left or should I go right? When they're not black and white issues, when they're issues of, um, I don't know, preference or they could go either way. Amen?